classes on Wednesday. Uh, we, we had a packed house. I was absolutely flabbergasted. Um, and uh, just in case you're wondering, we're going to be talking about the War of Two Worlds. And some of you know what that's about. If you don't know what it's about, come to the class. We're talking about evolution, creation, heaven, and hell. Uh, truth, what is truth? Is there such thing as your truth and my truth? And can they disagree? We'll talk about free will and God's will. Uh, we're going to ask the question, is science the enemy of the Bible? We're going to talk about the secret code in Scripture. That I say secret because it's not really secret. It's in plain sight, but we're going to explain that. We're going to talk about the life-saving importance of church attendance, and we're going to talk about sexuality. We did touch on a few of those issues at the last class. It turns out that um, there's lots to say, and we... Uh, <laughs> We started at 6.30, and we didn't end till 9. So we're going to try not to go quite that long. And, um, but I tell you, there's so much to talk about, great questions and great discussions. So I'm hoping that if you haven't been out to any of the classes, that maybe you can make it to this one or the next three. But I'm going to tell you, uh, my prayer is that it will be life-changing. George Barnett did some research and discovered that only 9% of Christians in North America have what we call a biblical worldview. Only 9%. It's shocking. And you might ask, well, what's the importance of a worldview? Well, basically, uh, it helps you uh, live the Christian life. It, it helps you make decisions. It really determines what you do and what you don't do and how you respond and how you react to what's happening around you. And we all know right now uh, the church is under attack. And we all know that our culture, the world as we know it, is very, very much um, at odds with our worldview. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but everybody in this room has a worldview. A lot of you just didn't know it. And, and, and it's, it's, uh, every worldview will be different. But here's, here's what we need to understand as Christians, is that we come together and we follow Christ and we are unified uh, by Christ. And that is what shapes what we believe, and how we respond to the world. Okay, so that's the, our Christian worldview. Now, enough of the commercial, and we'll go on to uh, our message on the resurrection. This is called the first creed uh, of the church. It's called the eyewitness creed, and it's essential to our faith because uh, it, it, it confirms the resurrection. And you've heard me say that if you... If you Take the resurrection out of the Christian faith, you don't have the Christian faith. It all falls apart. Uh, there's nothing to it. Uh, it's, uh, you're, when you die, that's the end. But if there is a resurrection, it's a game changer. It changes absolutely everything. And so the early church, they learned this. The Apostle Paul, when he became a Christian, uh, he was taught this probably by Peter and James, uh, maybe just uh, one or two or three years after Jesus rose from the dead. So it's, it, this was like hot off the press. And uh, so the early church, all the believers would have known this. Uh, they would have known this before there was even a Bible. Remember at this time that this was being recited by Christians. There was no New Testament yet. Um, it was in the process of, of being inspired by God. But this is really what helped Christians understand who they are and what Jesus Christ had done for them. So we're going to do what we've done for the last two weeks. We're going to do it one more week. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. And we are going to say the eyewitness creed together. This creed was passed on to the Apostle Paul, and now he's passing it on to the believers 
in the city of Corinth. And uh, let's, uh, let's do it together. Are you ready? Ready? Okay, here we go. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 followers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Thank you. That was brilliant. You may be seated. It was important to teach this eyewitness creed to the believers, to the early believers, so that there was no question, no doubt in their mind that they were serving a risen Lord. Does that make sense? They serve, we serve a risen Lord. Does everybody get that? Uh, Jesus is not in his tomb. There's no, he's, he's gone, he's risen. Hey, do you know what's interesting? In Jesus' time, it was, it was not uncommon for monuments to be erected to great teachers. Here's what we find. In Jesus' time, the, uh, archaeologists say there's at least, there were at least 50 tombs that were, that were, um, recognized and honored by, by followers of those various leaders. But the thing is, is that there's nothing like that for Jesus. And why is that? Because he rose again. This, by the way, is one of the proofs of the empty tomb. Now, next Easter, I'm going to be talking more about the proofs of the resurrection. But today, we're just going to focus uh, on this passage. And, um, and so he, here's what you and I need to understand. And we talked about this last week. We said that because of the resurrection, we are eternal beings. We understand that there's more to life than the few years that we have on this planet. Some people are lucky. They get to live a long time. My dad over there, he doesn't look a day over 82. I hope it's 82, not (laughs) 81. God's blessed him with a long life. Some of us don't get to live that long. We understand that there's got to be more to life than the few years that we're on this planet. My grandfather lived till he was 96. I remember having conversations with him about that. He just said, Alan, it just seems, it just seems that life went by like that. It was just, I was born and then it was over that quick. As Christians, we understand that there is a resurrection. Because there's a resurrection, we understand that there is some kind of an eternity. And we need to understand what that is. Last week we said, because there's eternity, um, we know, uh, according to Scripture, that there is a heaven and a hell. And we know that not everybody goes to heaven. We know only those who put their faith in Christ go to heaven. Now, I know that for some of you that's highly offensive, but don't, don't get mad at me or throw tomatoes at me. That's what the Bible says. I'm just the messenger. The other thing we know, we know that... Um, that someday we who are Christians will be judged by Jesus Christ at what we call the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. And there, your works are going to be judged by Jesus and your, your works will be, it'll be determined whether or not your works were, uh, were spiritual or if they were uh, carnal uh, or just for your own pleasure or for your own praise. 
And by the way, some people do good works just so that everybody will say, look at me. Look, look at the wonderful things I did. If those are the kind of works that you're doing, the Apostle Paul says it will be burned away like straw. The only thing that's going to endure are those works that are done for the glory of God. Did you get that? So if, you, if what you're doing, all the good deeds you're doing is for the glory of God, then here's what we know for sure, that those, those good deeds will shine like bright rubies, uh, like precious stones. The third thing we need to understand then is that if there is an eternity, we therefore must start laying up treasure in heaven. That's what our Lord taught us, right? He said, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust and robbers will get at it. Store up treasure in heaven. And so that's why we have an offering time every Sunday to give you an opportunity to store up treasure in heaven. But there's a fourth thing, and it's this idea of forgiveness. If you're holding unforgiveness in your heart, then the Bible is clear, you can't go to heaven. You say, well, Pastor John, I thought all I have to do is put my faith in Jesus Christ to go to heaven. Yeah, you do. That's the starting point. But then the evidence that you put your faith in Jesus Christ is that you forgive. And Jesus says this in, uh, in Matthew chapter 6. He says, if you don't forgive others their sins, then God can't forgive you. This is, these are the implications or the ramifications, the ramifications of the resurrection. So we are eternal beings, and we need to understand that how we live this life has eternal percussions or, or repercussions. Now, having said that, I want to talk to you about life, life now. And I mentioned last week that so many of the people in our culture, and this, is, this really is a rich world problem, if you want to put it like that, is that we really are caught up in things that don't matter. In, the, in what we call the temporal or the temporary. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. And last week I talked about how, how we're obsessed with posting on Instagram and, and doing our selfies, right? Remember we talked about the, the selfie pout and how we have to get good at that so that we can give good... I mean, it's amazing how many posts people will put up of themselves doing this. You know what? Somebody was so inspired by this last week that they sent me this. <laughs> That's David Carroll. He's, he sent that to me in the evening. And you notice he even did his hair specially for the selfie. He, he's got the pout. And I said, do you mind if I show everybody this? He says, I don't care. I won't be there next Sunday. <laughs> so uh, listen, can we get back at him? Because he's not here. Next Sunday... Uh, I'd, like you, when I'd like you to find him and just say, what an awesome selfie. Just tell him that. And tell him you learned well from Pastor Allen. You got it? Okay, good. So, so there, uh, there is uh, there's something temporal, something meaningless. We've got a chuckle out of it. But hey, really, in the long run, it doesn't matter. It has no eternal value, right? I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page. It has no eternal value. So we talk about the resurrection and the ramifications for eternity. Well, what about the ramifications for today? One of the things we said is that um, the resurrection gives us hope. It gives us hope about the future. We don't have to be afraid of dying. Paul says to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's better to die because then I'm with Jesus. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I cannot speak with that guy looking at me. 
Yes. So don't read that yet. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So we have hope for eternity, but do you know that we have hope for today and how we live our lives? The resurrection affects how we live our lives. Now, Paul points out a very famous philosophy. It's called, let's eat, drink, and and be merry for tomorrow we die. We we talked about that briefly last week. But I'm going to tell you, it is an ancient philosophy. And the... uh, the, the wisest, smartest king that ever lived, his name is Solomon. He's the first one to talk about that. We find it in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and Jesus references it, and you're going to see that in just a few minutes. Uh, but the, more importantly, there's, there's a, a philosopher by the name of Epicurus. And we know it in English as Epicurus. He was the one who taught this. And, and, and let's just read this first, and then I'm going to show you that. Uh, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, Paul says. Don't be fooled by people who come across as wise and brilliant with this great philosophy. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you're going to die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things. And why? Because bad company, bad teaching, bad instruction, bad ideas corrupts good character. That's what the Apostle Paul says. It's very, very important that you are wary of this philosophy. Now, there is a man by the name of Epicurus, the philosopher, 341 to 270 BC. He said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. Now, in all fairness to Epicurus, he was saying, eat, plain food, plain vegetables, drink plain water. In other words, no wine. Uh, And uh, he says, uh, be merry, have fun. Take pleasure in this life because you're going to die. Now, here's what's wrong with the idea. Uh, Well, maybe before I talk about what's wrong with the idea, let me just share with you the idea of what it is that he's trying to teach. So he says that In order to attain a happy and tranquil life, we need to achieve, first of all, uh, ataraxia, which is peace and freedom from fear. And that sounds good, right? Everybody here would say, yeah, I'm in favor of that. So epicuros, so far so good. And then he would say, well, we also need to have aponia, which would be the freedom of pain, Everybody be in favor of that. And then he would say uh, that we need to live a self-sufficient life. And if you're a conservative, then you'd say amen, double amen to that. And you need to surround yourself with good friends. So you listen to that and you think, well, you know, that all sounds pretty good. I don't really have a problem with any of that. But here's, here's what you need to know. There is a backstory to this. And here's... Here's, here's what Epicurus believed. He believed that there was a god or gods, uh, but he said that um, the gods don't care about you. They don't care about how you live your life. They don't care what you believe. Uh, they ignore you because you're insignificant. You're nothing. The other thing that he said uh, when he said that you, tomorrow you die is that you really die and you're dead and there's no afterlife, there's no eternity, uh, you, you do not rise again. 
Um, resurrection, the idea of resurrection, was a very novel idea, and it was, uh, there's not many people that believed it. In fact, there were many Jewish people that didn't believe in it. And Epicurus certainly did not believe in this. He said that the, that the, the basis of, of human neurosis was their unwillingness to face death or to admit that we're going to die. And we're kind of the same, aren't we? We don't really like to talk about dying. In fact, we have euphemisms for death. We say, well, he passed away or he went to his eternal reward or she's no longer with us. Um, and, and you know them all. We don't really want to talk, but we don't say he died or he's dead. It's, it's, it's really off-putting. Well, Epicurus said, yeah, that's, that's the problem. That's why, pe- that's why humans are anxious. That's why they're neurotic. Um, he said that, that humans assume that death and dying will be horrific and painful and that they just have to stop thinking like that. Doesn't sound too bad. Except the fact that once you're dead, it's over. That's what Epicurus believed. He maintained that people should still behave well. And the reason they should behave well is so that they don't have the burden of guilt. (laughs) Because that would prevent them from experiencing ataraxia, which is peace and freedom. And it begs the question... Uh, where do you get the idea from, of, of guilt? Because that's really more of a metaphysical uh, feeling or emotion. Now, if you thought, listening to the philosophy of Epicurus, that it sounds familiar, you might be sitting here thinking, wow, this, I've heard this before. Uh, it's, it's, it sounds, in fact, very modern. Well, you would be right, and here's why. Epicurus, his teaching, it, it, it actually endured for quite a while uh, into, the, uh, into the new millennium. But then the church fathers, rightly, condemned the teachings of Epicurus because, first of all, he was saying that, uh, that God does not care about you. And secondly, he's denying in eternity. He's saying that uh, when, you, when you die, it's all over. So he was, he, was, uh, he was out of circulation, out of vogue for, for really hundreds of years. And then by the 17th century, by the time of the Enlightenment, some of the great minds, the great philosophers of the day, they, they began to read his writings. And in fact, they began to be inspired by his writings. And lo and behold, he's back in vogue. Now, some of the, some of the great uh, authors that you would recognize, some of the great minds that were influenced by his, by his teaching, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, were people like Karl Marx, uh, Thomas Jefferson, um, John Locke, Hobbes, Newton, Darwin, um, Engels, Hume, and the list goes on and on. These men influenced by this philosophy. Now, remember what the Apostle Paul said. He said, don't be influenced by this bad philosophy. It's an evil philosophy because of where it goes. So in a nutshell, Epicurus is saying, number one, God doesn't care about you if there is a God. He just doesn't care. So you're on your own, baby. And secondly, he's saying there is no afterlife. Death is the end, so chill out. 
And then the third thing he's saying is pleasure is, in fact, the highest good. So eat, drink, and be merry. Now, this philosophy is virtually equal to the philosophy of, of every atheist. There is no God. When you die, it's over. There, it, it's, it's done. And uh, you should just pursue pleasure while you have breath. I'm going to tell you, if, if I were not a Christian, this would definitely be my philosophy of life because it makes sense to my natural mind. The other thing we need to recognize about this philosophy is that it has, in fact, saturated our culture. Virtually everything that we are reading, everything we're seeing on television is infected in some way by this philosophy. And here's what I know. If you're a believer today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then I know that the spirit in you gives you the ability to discern what I'm saying to you. You know it's true. And here's something else that's a problem. The the effects of this philosophy are in fact devastating when they're followed to their natural conclusion. Some of you have heard of the of the philosophy of hedonism. And you know, hedonism for a Christian you know, it sounds like a bad thing, but it's for those who are hedonistic and those who hold to that philosophy, it's not, it's not bad in their eyes, in their mind. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence. When we hear about sensual self-indulgence, it sounds, um, it sounds like the seven deadly sins on steroids. Uh, that's not, that's not really, uh, it's not really a correct understanding of hedonism. Uh, what, they're, what they're simply saying is that I should be able to engage all my senses and enjoy life to the fullest. It's interesting, isn't it, that there are a number of TV preachers that actually preach this. Only they don't call it hedonism. They call it by other names, which I'm not going to mention because I don't want to offend anybody at the moment. Hedonism is the ethical theory that pleasure, in the sense of the satisfaction of desires, is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. That, my friends, is the natural conclusion. This is where you go with what Paul is talking about to the Corinthians. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You now are going to be consumed with self. Self now becomes the center of your universe. Not others, and definitely not God, because they don't believe in God. But they're going to put self at the very center of their universe. And really, how, how could they do otherwise? Of course, self then is at the center of their universe. But it's, it gets even more sinister and more dark. You see, if, if, if there is no afterlife, if there is no eternity, now suddenly human life 
can be directed any way you want. It's expendable. You see, if there's no eternity, if life is hard and you really are struggling, you know, you suffered enough, mom or dad, grandma. Let's end your life now. What's that called? Well, we don't call it death because we don't like that word. Epicurus pointed that out. We're, we're neurotic about that. We call it euthanasia. Because, hey, surely life is to be lived with joy and pleasure. And if, you know, God forbid you should get pregnant and you've got a career and you've got places to go and people to meet and you're not married yet or the guy that you had the baby with, he hasn't got a job, he's a deadbeat, well, let's abort it. We don't say let's kill it because we don't like that. We're, neur- we're neurotic about it. Let's just abort it. And some of you maybe have heard on the news some of the shocking things that have been said by certain individuals in the USA. One governor said, I believe that a mother should be able to give birth to the baby, and when the baby's born, then she should be able to decide whether she wants it to live or die. Have you ever heard of anything more shocking? But you shouldn't be shocked because that is the philosophy of this world. What does it matter? In fact, that's exactly what another mayor said. He said, hey, what's the difference? We kill them when they're still in the mother's womb or after he grows up in a life of crime and we kill him in the, in the, in the electric chair. May as well kill him in the, in the womb instead. This is how people begin to think. And this is why our philosophy cannot be the same as the world. And that is the world's philosophy. This is why James tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Because the philosophies, the ideas of this world are absolutely 100% contrary to the teachings of Scripture. And it's critical that you understand that. Because we live in a world that is at war with God. And it begins with, in, the, in the area, in the arena of ideas, of beliefs. Your beliefs determine what you do. We shouldn't be shocked at what's happening in the world today because this is the world that we live in. Now, I already said it. If I were not a Christian, I would wholeheartedly embrace this philosophy. By the way, when I was in Bible school, we had a professor, his name is Dr. Carl Merrick, and one of the things that he insisted on is that we uh, students study the great philosophers and the great minds of the, of the Enlightenment. And if you go and look in my library, you will see a, a lot of the, the names that I spoke about. I think I even have a copy of the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx and Engels, a philosophy of this world. And I'm going to tell you something. If you read the Communist Manifesto, you, you're going to shake your head in wonder and in awe. This is an amazing document. Are you shocked at me saying that? It is an amazing document. The ideas that are presented by Marx and Engels, absolutely uh, thrilling. 
if you are intellectually inclined at all and you love to read and you like to study ideas, I, I can tell you so many great philosophers, great thinkers that will thrill your mind, thrill your heart. Now, one of the things that Dr. Carl Merrick said to us is said, now, I want to warn you, be very careful that when you read these philosophies, that you make sure that you balance it out with the word of God. And here's why. He said, the truth or the, the ideas that are written by these great thinkers, by these great philosophers, can very easily lead you away from God. He said, make sure that you are balanced in your reading. Make sure that if you're reading uh, Marx, make sure that you're reading the scripture to counterbalance these wrong ideas. I got to tell you, I, th- I thought, ah, you know, he's being too, I mean, my God, that's a fantastic faith. There's no way on earth that would ever happen to me. But it did. I began to doubt my faith and began to doubt Christ and began to doubt the scripture. And I found myself coming to the place where I was at a crisis. Hey, do you want to know how many, how many <laughs> Bible scholars who are in universities and seminaries across our country and across the USA and around the world who are teaching New Testament theology but are in fact atheists? How can that be? How could you be teaching the Bible and you don't even believe it? Folks, that's what happens when your mind is gripped by ideas and by philosophy that goes contrary to the will or the word of God. And so the Apostle Paul very rightly teaches the Corinthians that great eyewitness creed. Now, there's something I want to show you. Uh, But before I do, let me just say this. I said that if I were not a Christian, I would wholeheartedly embrace the Epicurean uh, philosophy. Except there's one huge problem, one really huge problem with this philosophy. And it's a pesky little thing called the resurrection. The resurrection absolutely destroys this philosophy. And you could say, well, Pastor Allen, you know, he said, she said, his word against his, his idea against his idea. Hey, listen, now you're going to see the absolute divine supernatural brilliance of God. It's going to blow you away. There's a, 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 a preacher right now. And I'm not going to mention his name, but he said recently what we have to do is we have to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. I can tell you, it is the, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard this brilliant pastor say. It's the absolute dumbest thing, and here's why. Because enshrined within this eyewitness creed are these very critical words. Christ died for our sins. Say it. Hmm. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. Hmm. Do you know that at the time that Paul said this, there was no New Testament? The thing that gave the teaching about the resurrection its authority was Scripture, the Word of God. It's the Scripture 
and its prophecies that came before Jesus actually died and rose from the dead. I don't know if you've got chills going down your spine yet. This is, this is, this is huge, to quote a famous president. Huge. Christ died for our sins just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scripture said. You know what? That first part of the of the eyewitness creed is very very important. Because in it it tells us what Jesus does for us. And then it tells us the authority that's behind it. Absolutely thrilling. How many know that Jesus is, another name for Jesus is the word of God? Did you know that? What is scripture? It's the revelation of God. What is the word of God? Who is Jesus? He is the revelation of God. Now watch this. This is going to blow your mind. Some of you may never have seen this. But in Jonah, how many have read the story of Jonah? Jonah is thrown overboard and he is swallowed by a great big wish. <laughs> Whale, fish, wish. No, it, he's, it, we don't, it says fish. Did you ever wonder why, if, you know, if you were God and you wanted people to believe the Bible, why you would throw that story in? Because it seems pretty impossible, doesn't it? Right up there with the ark. It's there prophetically. The story of Jonah is a prophetic word to us. And how do I know that? Listen to this. Matthew 12, 39 to 40. Jesus says no sign will be given to this generation because because the the Pharisees came to Jesus to ask, well, are you really the Messiah? Is this, like, is this, are you the one really? And if you are, give us a sign. And Jesus said, no. I don't have to. He says, no sign will be given to this generation. No sign's going to be given to you. I don't have to prove anything to you. Except for this one sign. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. <clears throat> Does that blow your mind? Jesus said that. To the Pharisees, the, the apostles are sitting there. They're listening to this. And it's like, what on earth is he talking about? Jesus coming up with crazy things again. Jesus, like, yeah, like, like we, we want you to be our, the leader of our country. You can't say crazy things like that. Can you just see the, the disciples taking Jesus aside and giving him good counsel? Jesus, don't, like, like, don't say things like that. But what you have to understand is that this is prophetic. Jesus knew that he was going to die and that he was going to be buried and that he was going to be resurrected. He prophesied this. He foretold it. And it wasn't for two days and it wasn't for four days and it wasn't for a week. It was precisely three days. This proves the resurrection. And if that's not enough, I can take you to Psalm 16, verses 9 to 10. And again, the, 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 the psalmist 
is now breaks into prophecy. And it's actually Jesus speaking. And it, Jesus says in Psalm 16, 9 to 10, No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. Wow! Is that thrilling? Isn't it amazing? This is before it ever happened. Jesus was saying, here's what's going to happen. I'm in control around here. I, nobody takes my life. I lay my life down. You think about that. Nobody takes my life. I lay my life down. You've got no control over me. I'm here to do the will of my Father. By the way, that's your Lord who's doing the will of the Father. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, guess what you're doing? The will of the Father. So Jesus was resurrected, just as the Scripture said. And then we read in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, the book of Isaiah is what we call the gospel of the Old Testament. We come to Psalm 50, Isaiah 53, and folks, I'm going to tell you something. You read it, and you, again, your brain is just boom. Because it is, the, it is a beautiful, exact account of the, re, of, the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look what it says here in Isaiah 53.10. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush who? Jesus. And cause him grief. Now, by the way, in case you, please don't misunderstand this. What was, what was, what brought God pleasure, because that's what it says in your version, probably. It was God's good pleasure. What God brought God pleasure was the fact that he knew that when his son died, you would have eternal life. So it was God's good plan to crush Jesus and to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. It's talking about Jesus. Then he will enjoy what? A long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. By the way, who are Jesus' descendants? You and me. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a descendant of Jesus Christ. This is possible, my friends, because Jesus died and rose again. There would be no descendants for Christ if he was still in the grave. Really critical that you understand that. And then it says in the next verse, verse 11, and when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant, that's Jesus, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Jesus took upon himself my sin. My sin, my sin's been washed away because of Christ. And I am now counted righteous before God. It's not because I'm such a good person, but because I put my faith in the one who took upon himself my sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Can anybody say amen with me? Hallelujah. We're told that because of his death and resurrection, we've been made righteous, sin-free. And if you were in our class on Wednesday, you know this, that all whose sins have been forgiven 
all whose sins have been washed away have the hope of eternal life in heaven. Hallelujah. You are going to heaven because of the resurrection. You're going to heaven to live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul says, but it's better to die. Get me out of here. I want to go be with Jesus. So I told you that I was going to tell you how the resurrection impacts today. I told you last week how it impacts eternity. Today I'm telling you how it impacts today. Uh, let me show you this verse. In 1 Peter 1.3, I showed this to you uh, in the first week. I'm going to show it to you again. Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that with an exclamation mark. That's an imperative. He says, do that. Give praise to God. Someone say, Hallelujah. Say, thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Oh, we got a few Pentecostals up here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this, look at this, look at this. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. What does that mean? When I say, well, I sure hope things turn out right. I sure hope I pass my test. We got our fingers crossed and we're hoping. I hope it works. The hope that Jesus has, when you say, I hope I pass my test, it's like, I know I'm going to pass my test 100%. That's the difference. It's, a, it's an assurance. So we have, with this new birth into a living hope, through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I got I to gotta just, I got to tell you one more really important thing here. Actually, two more, and then we're done. This word, resurrection... Anastasia, ana means up, stasis means stand. This word resurrection, it actually says that Jesus stood up. Now, this is the life that's ours in Christ. You can stand no matter what comes at you, no matter what kind of problems you have. Through the power of Jesus Christ and through that resurrection power, you can face anything that life throws at you. <laughs> what are you struggling with right now? Because I can tell you this, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you have the power to face anything in the name of Jesus because you've got the resurrection power in you. Stand up. When you go from here, you're going to... No, no, don't stand up. <laughs> Not yet. But, bro, oh, that would have been so cool if everybody did that. Oh. Stand up. That's what Peter's saying. It's that stand-up power. You can stand up and face anything in the name of Jesus. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. That's the resurrection power. You can face anything. You can do anything. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's yours. Now, do you remember what I said about Epicuros? I'm going to tell you the resurrection cancels out that philosophy once and for all. Number one, there is a God and he does care about you and he does keep his promises. And if you don't know the promises of God, shame on you. Open your Bible and start reading and seeing what God has promised to you. I can't do all the work. 
There is a God. Because of the resurrection, there is a God, and he cares about you. And the second thing you need to know, there is an afterlife, and this life has meaning here and now. How you live now will echo in eternity. This is the message of the New Testament. That's the message of the resurrection. And so if today you are not doing the will of God, then today has got to be a game changer for you. You've got to say, God, I come before you. I submit to your will and purpose. Father, forgive me for being an Epicurean because that's what you're being. You have embraced a philosophy that is anti-Christ, anti-church, anti-Bible. God, have your way in my life. And the third thing you need to understand Contrary to what Epicurus says, the highest good is not your pleasure. The highest good is doing the will of God. Can I get a witness? Let's stand together. I have a very special treat for you this morning. Jesus Christ is here, and he has a word for you. How many, buddy, who wants to hear from Jesus? Listen to this. Listen to this. It's going ch- to blow your socks off. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus said, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a simple story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. He said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you ever talk to yourself like that? My friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy and listen for it. Eat, drink, and be merry. Wow. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. Then all that you've worked for is going to go to somebody else. Who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. A person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. For some of you, this may be your last warning. Today, you need to do business with God. You need to surrender to him. And you need to say, Lord, I submit myself to you 100%. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die is the most satanic philosophy that has ever invaded the human mind. And it's been with us for millennia. Jesus, thank you for teaching us what matters. God, we pray in Jesus' name that we would have a rich 
relationship with you. God, we pray that we would reorder our lives and put you first in all that we say, in all that we do, in all that we think, because we want to hear you say to us someday when we stand before your judgment seat, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we commit ourselves to you now, thanking you for the resurrection and the truth that Jesus did rise from the dead. And therefore, my life today has meaning and purpose. And we pray that for Christ's sake. And everyone said it with me? Tell the person beside you, God loves you.